I want to introduce our first panel speakers who, those of you who um, came to yesterday's reading workshop will know that one of the themes that we um, investigated was the idea of psychological experimentation, the beginnings of experimentalism in psychology, and this is our own rendition of our little experiment. For these two are not of our general sort of blood, but are of a different blood. They both come from our uh, Vertex psychology department, and we're immensely grateful to them both for giving up their time to come and talk to us historical, literary, and cultural types about the sort of work that they do. And what we initially did was to ask each of them, and I'll introduce them both in a second, to think about their own work in relation to the two reading strands that we organised yesterday. So the first of our speakers will be Eamon Walsh, who's a lecturer in psychology at Birkbeck and a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's, just along the way from here. He's researching human perception and cognition using experimentation and neuroimaging techniques. His talk today, titled The Mind and the Brain, will explore the interface between mind and body, between thought and movement, and how this has shifted since the end of the 19th century. And he'll be followed uh, immediately afterwards uh, by Adam Tierney, who's a lecturer in psychology at Birkbeck, and he uses cognitive neuroscience tools to investigate auditory perception in language and music. And today he's responding to the second of our reading strands from yesterday on music and experimentation. So we're going to have the two talks and then we'll have um, some time for questions or I don't know what really. I, we don't, Heather and I have no more sense of what we're going to expect from our two speakers than anybody else in the room. So we're looking forward to it. Amen, I'll hand over to you. Good morning, everybody. Um, likewise, I'm immensely grateful to be invited, and I'd like to thank Carly for the invitation here this morning. Um, I'm particularly interested in human bodies and faces, and a little later I will tell you this illusion. But when I was invited to do this talk, I was quite interested to see what Google Images would show when you looked, when you entered the search term, Victorian woman or Victorian man, as opposed to just woman or man. And it was quite striking. You can tell something about the technology of the age and perhaps other uh, things. But what also strikes me is that you could transform, for example, the Victorian woman into the woman quite quickly. Within half an hour, you could let her hair down, change her outfit, maybe put on different makeup. And likewise, you could transform the modern man back into the Victorian man by perhaps lengthening his beard and just changing his outfit. Again, it'd be quite quick. So, for the next one, I'd like to reflect a little bit on the, uh, the book, the 1855 book, The Census and the Internet, by Alexander Bain. And then after that, I'd like to just briefly describe two small pockets of research which I'm currently involved in. Now, uh, what struck me about Alexander Bain was that he divides the mind into five, into four main parts. So it is like a dark continent, which is 
filled with variety and somehow we must bring a scientific rigor and order upon it. So he divides the mind up into four parts, the senses and the intellect, and then later in a, a second book, uh, emotions and the will. And today we'll talk about the movement sense, and I know some of the later talks also address this. So it is one of the senses. So we have the senses here, the five senses, and also the movement sense. Then we've got the intellect, the emotions, and the will. And when he's talking about the movement sense, he mixes it with a little bit of emotion from over here, giving, giving us quite a human picture. And he says the mind is something that's got certain marks. It can act, it can think, and it can feel. So what struck me is that he divides up the mind in the scientific way and he uses the only instructive analogy that I know of is found in some of the branches of natural history proper as for example mineralogy where a great effort of scientific classification is needed to reduce the order of the vast variety of mineral substances and I found this metaphor quite interesting the idea that within the mind you've got these buried treasures which can differ in their location and this can tell you something about their qualities and once you identify them and once you classify them you can work out their function, what they might be useful for. I found this quite interesting. So now moving on to the muscle sense and I, I greatly appreciate being pointed in this direction. Uh, I spent three years of my training studying movements, following movements. It's called abduction of the right index finger. And I focus particularly on 100 milliseconds before you move, just one tenth of a second before the move, because then a lot happens in the brain. And I spent three years studying that 100 milliseconds. Um, so I'd just like to read a part here uh, about the muscle sense. And the muscle sense was a term coined by Charles Bell, um, who he died in 1844 when Alexander Bain was uh, in his 20s and they both came from Scotland so, and he uses here the muscular sense so he uses the same terminology and he says that the muscle sense, the muscular sense is a sense apart, it is a sixth or muscular sense and he's difficulty in putting this into his order, he wants to order the worlds, to order the minds but he's difficulty with the sixth muscle sense so in my judgments, they ought not to be classified with the other five senses. And I believe further that the consideration of them should precede the exposition of the senses. The grounds of this belief are such as the following, namely that movements precede sensation. So the idea that you move and then you feel the muscle sense. We will come back to this a little later. Thank you. Now, he speaks about different types of movement and he, he talks about the pleasure of movement. So here he's mixing the emotions with the muscular sense. And here he gives an example of the pent-up energy uh, of, the, of the nervous system. So an active young hand, refreshed by sleep or rested by confinement, pants for being let loose, not because of anything that attracts his view or kindles up his ear but because a rush of activity courses through his memories, rendering him uneasy till the confined energy has found vent in a chase or a run. Um, I found this quite interesting. It's the idea that we're almost like a charged battery, which might have been the technology of the time. When we wake up, we are fully charged. And 
particularly in, in the young hand or in youth, we feel this need to expend this energy somehow. It is a motivation. And I'm not sure if we would find such a similar metaphor so obvious in a modern day textbook. Um, we think of muscles fatiguing, and that's true, but I don't think it is somehow different from this. But reflecting upon it, I think it's still present in advertising. So you can have a drink which will give you wings or will charge your battery for the next four or five hours. So I think this kind of still pervades, but in advertising rather than psychology. Alexander Bain also discusses this in relation to individual differences. Individuals have lots of pent-up energy, include William the Conqueror or Philip of Macedon, and then individuals with lower uh, achieve less in his book. He says there are many types of movements. There are slow movements and quick movements. The slow movement is the funeral march. It's quite beautiful, quite graceful. And there's a certain pleasure in movements which change speed. So, for example, there is every reason to believe that movements gradually increasing or gradually diminishing are more productive of pleasurable emotion than such are of a uniform character. So the idea that when we change speed, it is somehow more pleasurable. He points out that the very act of walking involves a rhythm. You swing the arm fast, like a pendulum. It reaches its end point, it stops, and then swings back again. So it's fast, slow, fast, slow. And this gives rise to the great pleasure of walking. There are also fast speeds, fast movements. They are extremely sought to give clarity and excitement to human life. The chase, the dance, the vehemence of oratory and gesture are prized for their stimulating character. So these are fast movements. And I must say, on these slow movements, it gives one example of an unpleasant slow movement, which is when you're on board a sinking ship. I'm not sure if you experienced that for a time. Um, so again, these fast movements can be very pleasurable. The frenzy of worshippers. Uh, but he also adds a caution. Some movements went too quick, and I find this a very Victorian thought. Movements went too quick, frequently can excite the nerves to the state of dizziness and fainting. Next slide, please. And finally, he gives an example of passive movements. He says there's nothing more pleasurable to be driven along by a horse and coach and just to sit there passively um, at a moderate speed. This is one of the great pleasures of life. And he points out that the rocking chair introduced by the Americans, who seem especially attentive to the luxuries of muscular sensibility, is calculated for passive movements. Anciently, furniture was adapted for the pleasures of repose solely, but now the boy's rocking horse has its representative among the appurtenances of grown men. So it is quite a charming example. The modern psychologist would argue that this is not a passive movement. So for example, if you're sitting now and there's no brain activity necessary, you can just sit there and be conveyed along by the of the carriage, the horse and coach, or the rocking chair. So this is not strictly a passive movement, but we'll come back to that. But again, this is one of the great pleasures. Now, I'd like to briefly give you two examples from my own research. So uh, here I'd like you to look at these two faces. And I simply ask you to decide which one is bigger. So which of these is larger? And can you please raise your hand if you find that the face on the left is if, you, if it looks larger to you, can you raise your hand high in the air? So there's quite a lot of hands. And can you please raise your hand if the face on the right appears larger to you? So we've no hands there. So most people um, 
find the face on the left is larger. And we, we were going to measure them for you, but both of them are exactly contained in a box to maximally fill that box, which is 9 centimeters by 9 centimeters. So we could show you by leaving power pipe at the right clicking, but they are 9 centimeters by 9 centimeters. So why is it that one face appears? Why is it that an upside down face appears larger than an upright face? Why is it? Well, one advantage of having an upright face squashed, and quite often this is where the illusion lies on the upright face. This is smaller. It's, I know it's always relative, but it's not that the upside down is bigger. And one advantage of having an upright face smaller is that you can read it quickly. So you can see there can be an evolutionary advantage. You can look at this face and you can read it. You can see whether it's happy or whether it's sad, whether you should stay or whether you should run. It tells you quick, more quickly how to engage with the face. Why might this be happening? So we know that when information about faces has a very specific place in the brain. So the front of the brain is to the right of the picture and the back of the brain is to the left. So the eye is there to the front. And information from the eye flows to the very back of the brain and then it flows forward again to this spot here, the fusiform face area shown in blue. And this is a part of the brain, small, around the size of a fitpenny bit, and it specializes in processing faces. In patients where this is damaged, they are cortically blind for faces. They can see strawberries, they can see bottles, they can read the newspaper. And, but in pure cases, they cannot recognize, they cannot process faces because they are cortically blind for faces. Um, if you can advance, please. We think, and this is our suspicion, we have yet to test it, that inverted faces are processed in a slightly different part of the brain, that different cells are involved. It may be partially overlapping, it may be intermingled. And this is part of the mystery, but we need uh, one other step. So again, here we are looking at the brain again, and cells at different points have different receptive field sizes. So you can see a V1 at the very back of the brain, the cell receptive field sizes are tiny. So at the moment, as you look at this image, the tiny receptive fields at the back of your brain can only see a tiny part of the image. So you need hundreds, perhaps thousands of them, which are V1 cells to appreciate the whole image. But if we move forward into the brain, maybe V4, TEO here in the picture, the receptive cell sizes are much larger. So now this part of your brain only needs three or four or five cells to process the whole image. And if you can advance and uh, back one, please. So we think this might be why, or this might be part of the answer why upright faces and inverted faces are processed differently. There are slightly different parts of the brain with slightly different receptive field sizes. So that's the end of one part of research which we're currently doing at uh, Birkbeck. And now, if you can advance the work we're doing at King's College London, and this is where we use real time functional magnetic resonance uh, imaging neurofeedback. And we invite participants to lie in a scanner, as you see here, and we present to them on a screen the rocket you can see there, and it's parked in the middle of a green field. And when they are lying down in the scanner, we say to them, we want you to use your mind, to use any mental strategy you like to try and fly this rocket. You can think of anything you like, but lie as still as possible. You must only use your mind. And the strategies that people often engage in might include, they may imagine flying the rocket, for example, 
where some people pray, some people imagine cooking, some people try different emotions or relaxation. It does not matter as long as the rocket flies. And what we do is, we take, first of all, take a picture of their brain, which you can see here. And this takes around five minutes to take a 3D structural picture of the brain. And then we, we select this area here, it's shown in yellow, and we take the mean brain signal from this area, and we use that to drive the rocket. And this part of the brain corresponds to up here, so the front of your brain, right between your eyes, just right up here. And if you like, it's a kind of like a muscle. And what we want people to do is activate this muscle, or to learn how to activate this muscle. And they can do that using their mind. By using their mental strategy, they can coax more blood into this part of the brain. If more blood flows into this part of the brain, then the rocket will rise. If blood flows out of the brain, we're going to be talking about minute amounts, then the rocket will sink. So we invite people over eight days, we invite them back several times and we say, learn, 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 fly higher, higher, higher. We try and motivate them to fly the rocket as high as they can, to train that muscle as much as they can. And why are we doing this? Well, one reason is that this part of the brain here, kind of ventral medial and dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, has direct anatomical links to another part of the brain showing here in red, called the amygdala. And the amygdala is involved in anxiety. So further down the line, we would like to be able to train people with anxiety to control their own anxiety. Why should we do this? Well, medication at the moment has only limited effect. It might work for the first couple of months and then wear off. Also, anxiety is a big problem. It affects almost everybody at some point in their life, but one in three people uh, quite a lot. Uh, you can take medication, as I say, it's got limited effectiveness. It can be expensive and it can have nasty side effects. And also there is an element of, here, you take this, I'm in charge here, you, you do what I say and you'll get better. But if you can empower individuals to use their own brain activity to control their own anxiety, this may offer at least an alternative. At the moment, it's only theoretical. There may be side effects. There also to this method. And you need a big machine at the moment, a big scanner. So there are also problems with it. But this is our theoretical interest. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so here along the bottom, you can see an example of raw brain signal. This white jagged line here is the mean brain signal from here. When this goes up, the rocket they see on the screen goes up. When this goes down, the rocket goes down. So here, the rocket will be jittering and skittering in the sky. It will not be flying very effectively. But you can see by the fifth minute that the person is beginning to gain control over the rocket. And it begins to fly up into the clouds. By the eighth minute, they are already leaving the Earth's stratosphere. The rest of the solar system becomes visible to them, and if they are very good, they can even voyage along the planets and as they're controlling their own brain activity. So now just a, a few more slides. I'd like to move back to uh, Alexander Bain again. And so he had this model of the mind, which is like a kind of a, a pent-up something full of energy, like a battery which can be discharged. He also divided it into all these sections using the scientific method. But perhaps the metaphor were dominated by today's the computational model, inputs and outputs, the mind is a computer. If we look at the front of the brain, again on your right, this is like, generally you can divide the brain into two large parts, very crudely speaking. The front of the brain is like an output, 
the back of the brain is more like an input. So for example, if someone touches you and as that information about the touch flows up into your mind, into your brain, it'll flow to these regions along here. We saw earlier when the face data flows into your brain, it flows back here and ends up here. Too. So the back of the brain is like a big library. All the senses flow in there and gathers information about the world. Whereas the front of the brain is the output. It acts. It processes all that information. And it moves and acts upon the world. If you move your hand, this part of the brain will be active. Uh, next slide, please. And again, here we can see the input and the output. So in the top green slide, we can see someone is about to make a movement. They're about to move their hand. Before we do, before we do, the brain must construct the motor command, like a computer program. It assembles it and then discharges it as a volley down the descending tracks of the spinal cord, down the arm. It takes maybe 25 milliseconds before that signal reaches here. That's around the same speed as uh, Usain Bolt's when he's sprinting, around 10 meters per second. When it arrives here, it innervates the muscle for the next 50 milliseconds. Only then does the, does the movement occur. And you've got 85 billion neurons controlling 600 muscles. Many of them control these muscles in order to move us through the world so we can act upon it. But here in this voluntary movement, you've got this green outflow of information. As soon as the muscle moves, the muscle sends a signal back to the, the brain. That's the red inflow. So each time we move our 600 muscles, we've got all these green outflows followed by red inflows. And it really is an amazing fact that the brain can orchestrate in time all this, just like the symphony. Now, in passive movements, just moving back to Alexander Bain, it's not really when you're in a coach and carriage and you're not moving. It's rather if the coach jolts your arm so that it moves of its own accord. In this case, there will be no green outflow. There is no voluntary movement. But you will get the red inflow as the muscles act. Uh, I, I also forgot to mention in the sleep part that uh, Charles Bell mentioned this quite interesting experiment, and I'm coming to the end now, just another two or three minutes. Uh, he mentioned this interesting experiment which you can try yourselves at home in bed. Uh, it's quite difficult to initiate the experiment, I find. But if you imagine looking down on yourself and you're in bed, and as you're lying there, you, you might be sprawled, something like this. For this example, you're not touching your own body in any way. You're sprawled, so kind of spreading this somehow. And you, at the moment of awakening, your eyes are not yet open. It's very important not to open your eyes yet. It's very important not to move yet. We're just saying now, the first moment of consciousness, the question Charles Bell asked, would you know where your limbs are before you move? Would you know where your body is? Now, you could do it now. You can say, well, I'm going to close my eyes and not move. But you, you can remember where you left your limbs, if you like. You know they're here somewhere. And you can look, and of course, you can see where your limbs are. Vision is dominant but when you wake up in the morning, the first moment of consciousness, would you won't know where your limbs are? And this was a big question at the time. And we now know that the answer is yes. There's a, the muscles are divided up into fibers. Around each fiber, and Alexander Bain describes these fibers very well in, in this chapter. Around these fibers, you've got these spindles. And these spindles can tell you something about the limb position. This was not known at the time. Proprioception was not known at the time. Someone later is speaking about Charles Scott Sherrington, I know, and he coins the term proprioception in 1906, three years after Bain died. So this was missing from his vocabulary, this part of the puzzle was missing. And so this is uh, just a uh, final slide here. So what would Bain think of our modern psychology? Well, I think he would smile 
maybe benignly, I'm not too sure. And he would look, I think he would like the scientific method. We still break things down. But now we do not ask so much, how can we divide up the mind? That is a grander, more difficult problem. Now we say, how can we divide up the brain? That is also a huge problem, but it seems easier somehow than the minds which you cannot really grasp. Some people would say they are the same thing. But I think Bain would look at the psychology of today, and he would uh, look at proprioception, but he would recognize it. He would see that, in a way, the convictions forms one from the other quite easily. And when we look back from the vantage point of the present, and we look back at the Victorian psychology, I think we'd also recognize it. We'd see that there's bits missing. We'd also see that we're missing bits, that it is very enriching. And finally, I'd say that Alexander Bain, uh, he wrote the senses and the in intellect, but he had fine senses and fine <laughs> intellect, and I think he was ahead of his time. Thank you. since Victorian times, and one of the main things that's changed is the set of tools that psychologists can use to study the mind. And a lot of the things that we, in particular I, take for granted today uh, were not around at the time of some of the readings that we did today. So for example, um, even something uh, as basic as modern statistics, which uh, I certainly take for granted, was not invented until the turn of the century, between the 19th and 20th century. Uh, and similarly, hypothesis testing, which is really the core of modern psychology, was not invented until the 1920s. Um, as well, cognitive neuroscience techniques like EEG were actually invented quite a long time ago, but the way the EEG is used to study the mind has changed considerably since the 20s. Um, the use of computers for stimulus presentation and data analysis and also modeling of psychological processes really started in the 1970s and transformed a lot of psychology. And finally, probably the most recent major innovation was the advent of functional neuroimaging techniques in the early 1990s. Um, However, despite all these advances, if you go back and you read uh, writings from the early history of psychology, um, the, a lot of the topics that are discussed and the ideas that are discussed actually seem quite modern, which is really striking given uh, how few tools they had to work with in actually gathering concrete information. And, and today we're talking about a few examples uh, from the readings that we did for today. So uh, first, the idea that music and language share psychological foundations that there might be some deep connection between language and music that might be possible to study. Um, second, the question of how widespread musical competence is. Uh, so the, the question is, is music listening something that's really the domain of experts and something only experts can do or do well? Uh, or is it something that's more widespread and that your average person on the street without special training, uh, do they have musical skills? And finally, this idea, which is very influential in modern uh, theories and models of music cognition that the motor system plays an important part in music listening, even if the person listening is not actually explicitly moving. Uh, so I'm going to start with this idea of there being a deep connection between music and language. Um, this is a big part of my research, and it's really exciting to see mention of this uh, so early on in the literature. 
Um, and uh, this is probably the most, one of the most relevant passages for this idea from the readings from Grant Allen in 1877. Uh, he says, vowels yield pure musical tones, uh, hence these differences are of great importance in poetry. Highly vocalized lines are the most musical. Uh, he goes on to talk about other elements of speech being less musical. So the idea is here that there might be something musical lurking even inside certain types of sounds that are not explicitly musical, and in particular in speech, uh, there might be a way to think about and potentially even listen to speech that brings out these musical elements. So a complementary idea is that there might be something uh, speech-like in music. So here are a couple of quotes um, about this idea from James Sully. First, by the simplest process of association, musical tones seem to typify, typify vocal action itself. You as a conscious player plus score energy. Uh, it would also be equivalents of vocal energy in music are emphasis, rapidity, distance of pitch from a certain average level, and width of interval. So there's sort of two complementary ideas here. First, there's something musical about speech, but second, there's something speech-like about some of the patterns in music. Um, so, go ahead. Uh, so, back home, there we go. Um, so there are these two ideas, and uh, what I'm going to talk about is, now from the standpoint of modern psychology, is there a way to look at these intriguing ideas and see if they're actually testable, and is it possible to find some demonstrations of this that are, uh, that are empirical, maybe more convincing. So um, first, in order to study this first idea of there being patterns in music that come from speech, um, the first thing we would need to do to look at that would be to pick a pattern in music, and ideally it should be relatively widespread, uh, and also relatively simple basically just because simplest things when you're first studying, starting in the field uh, are the easiest thing to start with. So in deciding to look at this, I decided to start with this very basic pattern known as the melodic arch. And uh, what that means is if you look at the phrases of folk songs, um, and uh, any one of those phrases could have a variety of pitch patterns. They might go up, uh, they might go down, they might kind of oscillate back and forth. Um, however, if you average across a huge number of phrases, then what you'll find is that there's a, there's, there's a particular pattern that's more prominent than the others. And basically it looks like this. So this is an example from 1996, uh, where this researcher took a huge number of notated folk songs, and here he's just looking at all the phrases that are seven notes long, and uh, this is a very obvious arch pattern, where the phrases go up at the very beginning, they decline a little bit, and then they go down even more sharply at the very end. Um, now these are just Western folk songs, so this is by itself not um, really very good evidence that this pattern is universal, although working with a musicologist from Japan, uh, I actually showed this year that this pattern is found in non-Western folk songs as well, so it does actually seem to be fairly universal. Um, so, okay, there, there is this pattern that's fairly prevalent. Uh, so the question is, where does this actually come from? Uh, well, one possibility is that it comes from a similar arch, which is happening in the air pressure that builds up, uh, rises and falls as you speak or sing. So what happens when you speak is something that looks like this. In order to actually drive the speech, pressure builds up beneath your larynx, uh, and then you talk for a while, the pressure gradually falls, and then it drops off quite sharply at the very end. And importantly, you start talking before this pressure actually reaches its maximum. Um, so, okay, there's, uh, there's an arch here, there's an arch in the other case, but why might we expect those to actually be related? Well, um, it turns out that there actually does seem to be a close relationship between the, um, the 
amount of air pressure below the larynx and the pitch of both speech and song. So here's one example where uh, this is an opera singer who's producing vibrato. And on the bottom, this is the pitch contour. So you can see the pitch kind of going up and down as the singer produces the vibrato. And then on top, you can see what's happening to the singer's, again, pressure, air pressure below the, the um, larynx. So there's this tight relationship between air pressure and pitch. Uh, now, obviously, there are other ways to modulate pitch, so even if air pressure is constant, you can change the tension of your vocal folds, and that would change pitch. But all else being equal, this relationship does exist, and it's also causal. And you can see this yourself if you ask someone to sing a constant pitch, and then you just suddenly, without warning, push on their chest. I don't necessarily recommend this, but that would raise, that would raise the pitch of their voice because it would build up uh, suddenly pressure below their larynx that they're not expecting. So, um, if this is actually what's driving the arch contour in song, then we might expect to find the same patterns in speech. Uh, and that's actually what we find. So again, here is the average pitch contour of a large number of folk songs. Uh, here I'm using the same database as before, but I'm collapsing across uh, all different note lengths. That's why it looks a little different. Uh, and then we also find the same thing if we look at spoken sentences uh, collapsing across a variety of languages. It looks uh, a little different, but you can still see this sharp rise at the beginning, this gradual fall in this sharp decline at the end. So this idea that there might be speech patterns kind of lurking in song uh, and in music generally does seem uh, to be somewhat true. And you can actually find these patterns in instrumental music as well, uh, even though in that case, obviously, there is no buildup in pressure below the larynx. So there's, there's no kind of physical, mechanical reason for them to be there. So probably what's going on is that composers are imitating the patterns that are present in speech uh, and in vocal music and intentionally or subconsciously putting those in their compositions. Now, if this pattern really is due to this sort of these basic constraints that go along with the breath cycle, then you might expect to find them not only in human music and human speech, but also in the song produced by animals that also power their song by expelling air from the lungs. And actually, that's what we found. So you can find the very same thing in bird song, this same melodic arch that goes up at the beginning and falls and then falls sharply. Um, this is complicated by the fact that birds breathe in between notes. So this is actually a melody within a single note in bird song, but it probably has the uh, same cause. Okay, so, so now I'm going to move on to this complementary idea. Uh, so there do seem to be vocal or speech patterns in music. Um, and looking at this another way, is it possible to look at speech and maybe find musicality lurking inside the speech that you didn't know was there? Uh, and this is a very old idea. It's not only in some of the readings that we did today, but it's also in the writings of Darwin and Spencer for many times. Um, but there, there really was not a, any um, clear demonstration of this until very recently. And for me, the most striking demonstration of this uh, is this speech song illusion that I've done a lot of work on that I find quite fascinating. Uh, this was first, first reported by a music, a music psychologist, Diana Deutsch, in 2003, though she didn't publish on it until 2011. Uh, and the way she discovered it was she was recording a CD where she was explaining some uh, facts about auditory perception. And uh, in order to check the recording for flaws, she was repeating parts of it. And she noticed that a certain segment, while she was repeating it, at some point, it, for her, perceptually transformed from speech into song. Uh, so I'm just going to play that for you now, and first I'm going to play the whole passage, and then I'm going to isolate the key part of the passage and then repeat it. Just sort of listen carefully and think about what you're hearing. Um, so sorry, go back. This is going to. This is actually maybe I should. 
So here's the whole passage. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. But they sometimes behave so strangely. They sometimes behave so strangely. 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 Okay, so first, um, not everyone actually hears this, which is interesting. So how many people actually did hear a transformation, some sort of transformation from speech in a song over the course of this? Okay, uh, so not everyone, but I would say the majority. Um, every time I give a talk on this, I'm afraid that everyone would just look at me blankly when I ask this, and that'll be the talk to kind of over. Um, so, uh, so I became interested in studying this phenomenon uh, using the tools of cognitive neuroscience, but to do that, I first needed to find more examples. And I was also just curious whether it would be possible to find more examples. So how prevalent is this phenomenon? Uh, is this vanishingly rare? And is that why no one noticed this until 2003? Or uh, is it possible to find more? So what I did is I, I basically just for about three months did nothing but listen to audiobooks um, very, very carefully looking for more examples. And I was able to find 24 more examples that uh, where the same basic phenomenon seems to happen. There's this transformation when you repeat them. And importantly, 24 control examples where if you repeat them, um, there's, there doesn't seem to be a similar transformation. So uh, I don't have time to play many of these for you today, unfortunately, so I'm just gonna play one. Uh, so could you play the, the, top, the top left example just once? To say nothing of half a dozen other people in the neighborhood in whom I was not even interested. Okay, now could you play the top right example about, about seven times? Uh, the loop's not built into the so. People in the neighborhood, the people in the neighborhood, people in the neighborhood, the people in the neighborhood. Okay, that's good. Um, so, so my first question in finding uh, more examples of this was, well, um, do other people actually hear this the same way as me, or am I, am I just sort of being crazy? Because again, I've been doing this for three months. Uh, so, ah. so go on. Uh, so by this point, I'm convinced that that's not the case, because I've, I've asked uh, over 130 people to actually rate these um, after one repetition and then after eight repetitions. Uh, and what I, interestingly, what I find is that both the control stimuli and the illusion stimuli do become a little more song-like. So what's on the x-axis here is uh, basically the amount of um, the extent of the change from speech to song, uh, where higher numbers indicate more song-like. So if any of them became more speech-like, the numbers would be negative. But none of them do. But there's a, at least a small change, on average, for every stimulus. Um, but obviously this change is a lot stronger for the illusion stimuli. There's no overlap between the two categories. So my intuitive judgment of how they would sound to people uh, turned out to be more or less representative of the general population. Um, so. Okay, so uh, there do seem to be these interesting links between uh, speech and song, such that you can, in, in a sense, find song in speech and also find speech in song. Um, so second, I'm going to move on to uh, a different idea that we can actually study using the same effect, though, which is how widespread is musical competence? Uh, do, does the general population, do people without special training have musical skills? Uh, are they capable of musical listening, or is that something that you really need to teach people? Um, so this idea comes up in a passage from the reading from Gordon Lee, where she says, there is therefore on the part of thorough-paced listeners a frequent sense that such following of all the notes and all their relations is by no means universal. And 
we find that such listening is claimed as a highly intellectual occupation. So the question is, is listening to music an intellectual occupation, uh, or is it something that's more natural that everyone can do? Um, and one way to look at this is to look at this phenomenon that I just showed you, uh, and then just ask a large number of people without musical training to make judgments about the stimuli, uh, and see what characteristics they seem to be using when they judge stimuli that really aren't musical, uh, how musical they sound. So one possibility is because, because these might not be sophisticated listeners, maybe they're using very simple cues. So maybe they're just listening for flat pitch uh, under a syllable or something and they need that in order to assign a note to the syllable. So that's one possibility. Um, but a second possibility is that they're making more sophisticated musical judgments. So I tested this idea uh, using two theoretical computational models of music listening. So the first was a computer algorithm of where the beats are in music, uh, and um, that it's uh, an automated algorithm that's meant to be applied to music, but in this case I actually applied it to speech, and uh, I looked at the variability uh, in the intervals between beats, um, thinking that, well, maybe if the beats are more steady, that people are more likely to hear his music. And uh, second, I used a model of melodic structure that takes in a number of different variables and assesses how well a sequence of pitches fits characteristics of Western melodies. So th these are things like how well they fit a particular key, uh, and also some characteristics of the pitches themselves. Are they in the right range? Uh, how big the intervals are? That kind of thing. And um, what I found is that actually all three of these things played a role. So the, this, these are the strength of the correlations between each of these things and the change in song perception when you repeat these stimuli. Uh, and it does matter whether pitches are relatively flat, but it's not the only thing that non-musicians find important. And uh, they are listening for both beat variability and melodic structure. Uh, and these are things that really require them to apply um, musical ideas to the stimuli. And uh, in fact, all these things predict independent variants in the data, such that if you put them all together, and then you look at how well the ratings are predicted, uh, there's a fairly impressive prediction just using these three characteristics. Um, so I would say this is evidence that even people without musical training, uh, they do have some knowledge, some musical knowledge. And in fact, they can even use the, take that knowledge and apply it to things that are not themselves uh, music. So they have musical knowledge, and they can apply that fairly flexibly. Okay, um, so finally, uh, I'm going to look briefly at this idea that the motor system might play an important part in music listening. I don't really, unfortunately, have time to do justice to this. It's a very important idea right now in a lot of um, models of music cognition, so I'm just going to touch on it very briefly. But because it's an important idea, I didn't want to, uh, to leave it alone. So this comes up in this very long um, passage from uh, this very long section from Harry Weld that we read for today. Uh, and it comes up a lot in, in this study. Um, and uh, in particular, it's summarized in this section. Uh, sorry, there we go. Uh, it is a fact that every auditor reacts to music with a more or less definite and pronounced motor response. This response may consist in the more patent and obvious movement of beating time, and it may run the gamut through the various gradations from this crude reaction to the subtlest play of sheer images of non-executive movements. Um, so the idea is when you listen to music, to some extent you're actually doing so with your motor system, and that's true even if you're not actually moving along uh, explicitly. That's a very interesting idea, and uh, is it now possible with the tools of psychology and cognitive neuroscience to actually test this and demonstrate this empirically? Uh, well, one way to do this is to, again, return to the speech song illusion and look at what's going on in the brain when people perceive these very similar examples either as speech 
or its song. Uh, the hypothesis being that when people listen to the song examples, that there will be greater recruitment of the motor system if there really is this strong, important motor component of listening to music. And the reason why uh, this particular phenomenon is very useful for studying music perception in this way is uh, often studies of music versus language perception, uh, they run into this problem that the stimuli themselves are very different acoustically. And there are a lot of parts of the brain that care about basic acoustic characteristics, uh, and those parts of the brain will become involved in that case simply because the sounds are very different. Whereas in this case, whereas in this case the control examples are very similar acoustically to uh, the illusion examples. They're all spoken by the same people. Um, they're all roughly the same duration, roughly the same pitch. So in this case, hopefully, any difference that we find in brain activation for the song examples really will tell us something about song perception itself. Um, so I'm not going to go over everything that I found, but just uh, most relevant for this idea of, mo of uh, the motor system and music perception is, and again, uh, the activation that we found here that was greater for the illusion examples and the control examples. Uh, so this is a part of the primary motor cortex, which is the part of the brain that deals with the production of movement. And one of the interesting things about this part of the brain is that different parts of primary motor cortex are responsible for moving different parts of your body. And you can see on the right here, these are a uh, couple of figures from a study that asked people to move different parts of their body and then mapped where the increase of activation was in the brain. Uh, and you can see what was activated is part of this motor cortex uh, just sort of down and a little forward. And it's this same part when people were asked to move their lips and their tongue. And it was the same part that we found these same parts that were more activated for song perception than speech perception, which really suggests that people had a greater tendency to sing along to the stimuli when they were hearing them as music than when they were hearing them as speech. Uh, and this is really what people tend to report when you talk to them about the solution and when you ask them to introspect. So um, there's also, this is not the only piece of evidence there is uh, for involvement of the motor system in music perception, but uh, so this is an idea that we can now test. Um, this is an idea that cognitive neuroscience has really borne out and supported uh, many, many years after it was first proposed. So, uh, Victorian psychologists really seem to have hit upon many of the issues which continue to occupy music psychologists, including myself today. Uh, it's really quite striking, and uh, especially given how few of the tools we use today were available to psychologists back then. So, why might that actually be? Um, well, I think, not many psychologists, I think, would necessarily admit this, but I do think that introspection remains an important stage of the research process. Uh, it's, it's obviously not the be-all and end all anymore, um, but I think it's especially important in generating hypotheses, uh, which do have to come from somewhere originally. And I think being able to think carefully about your own experiences and talk to people and, and um, investigate the experience, experiences of others uh, is an important way to generate ideas that you can then go and empirically test using more modern techniques. Thank you.